This is Israel Connection coming to you on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88FM and streaming over the internet at j-air.com.au. Today is the sixth day of Hanukkah with Jews around the world celebrating this wonderful holiday that commemorates the Jewish people's ready dedication to the Temple. My name is David Schulberg bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. In the second half of today's show, I'll be playing a heart-rending interview I recorded with Arnold Roth, whose daughter died in the Sabaro Pizzeria bombing over 20 years ago and who has now sadly lost his son-in-law, Naftali Gordon, killed on the battlefield in Gaza late last week. Now, to begin with, I uh, should be speaking with Dr. Jason Thomas, but I haven't been able to get him yet on the, on the line. In the interim, I am going to play a short a speech that Michelle Ananda Raja, who's the uh, Labour member for the seat of Higgins, who gave at a, uh, a meeting in King's Domain just over a week ago of uh, a Jewish community and its supporters over the Israel-Gaza war. So let's have a listen. I often say at any opportunity, whether I'm in Parliament or doing media or speaking to anyone, that Australia has a degree of social cohesion that is the envy of the world. And I don't use these words lightly. As a migrant myself, I came to this country when I was 12. My parents are of Tamil, Sri Lankan heritage, and they fled Sri Lanka in the 60s and 70s due to the pogroms. And we moved around the world and eventually settled in Australia. And the reason I thrived and my siblings thrived is because we felt welcomed in this country. And that has been the hallmark of this nation. It has been a melting pot over successive generations, waves and waves of migrants, many of whom have fled war-torn theatres. But right now, those bonds between us are being tested. They are being tested. I am seeing a disturbing level of polarisation that has emerged around this conflict, one that I've never seen before. And there have been many, many wars, as you know, Afghanistan, Rwanda, and so on. And I've never seen anything like this. You are not imagining it. The anti-Semitism that you are experiencing is disproportionate. It is disproportionate. And you are experiencing a level that the other side are not getting. It's much higher. And this was confirmed by a meeting I had with my colleague here, Josh Burns, last week in Parliament with the Director General of ASIO. This is really tough for you all. And I was angry when I saw this emergence of this behavior. And now I've got to say, I'm, I'm profoundly sad. I'm in fact, I just dismay that people who really don't understand the nuance and the complexity of this <coughs> tension and conflict feel compelled to instead extend their hand in friendship, raise a fist. And that is not right. It's not who we are as Australians. It doesn't align with our values as one people under a common sun. You will get through this. It doesn't feel like that right now. We will get through this. We are right now in the eye of a storm and this storm and the dark forces feel impenetrable. But as the sun always rises, those dark clouds will part and better days lie ahead. And I come as an ally to the Jewish people. Everywhere, everywhere. And 
And in saying that, it doesn't in any way detract from the other truth, which is that we mourn every single life lost, irrespective of Jewish, Palestinian, foreign, non-resident foreign national, every life lost matters. As someone also who knows something about a civil war that was driven by a terrorist ideology in Sri Lanka, it ended in 2009, a lot of Tamil people died, a lot of Tamil people died. Terrorism is incompatible with a liberal democracy. It is incompatible with peace. As awful as it is, it must be rooted out by any means because there will never be peace for Israel. There will never be peace for the Palestinian people unless it is rooted out. And instead of terrorism, we need to see an embrace of statecraft. Statecraft, where instead of picking up a gun, you pick up the phone. And that's really what we need to see in the new dawn that is coming. What gives me hope is really what I look at in front of me. I don't see messages of hate. I see messages of love, profound love, a people who are yearning for peace and are standing in solidarity with their fellow citizens in Israel and with the troops as well on that front line who we need to pray for. My own Jewish community is in turmoil, as many of you are. I can't seem to talk about this problem without crying. I don't know why I'm not crying today. It's unusual. The anti-Semitism that we have seen doesn't just affect the Jewish people. It, it, send, it, it ripples out like a shockwave through this country. And that's exactly what I said to the ASIO Director General. It's a shockwave and it affects people like me because it makes us all feel like we don't belong. We see a side of humanity that is dark and unacceptable. We will get through this collectively and we will get through it by embracing a message of peace and a message of love. And the Jewish people here will be the ones who advocated as you have done from the very beginning of this conflict. And that is a credit to you. Today I have Dr. Jason Thomas, the head of the organization Frontier Assessments, with me on the line. Welcome to the Israel Connection, Jason. Thank you very much for having me on. I feel very humbled to be speaking to you and your, your audience. Um, I wouldn't ordinarily uh, do this, but given the the, the the gravity of the situation that we face and also the, the the deep respect that I have for the Jewish community and uh, in particular for uh, Israel. So I just want to thank you very much for the opportunity to, to have a chat with you. Do you want to briefly outline before we get into the grist of it, uh, the nature of the work you do with uh, Frontier Assessments? The nature of my work is, is uh, pretty simple. I specialize in conducting what you might call uh, non-technical due diligence for companies that around the world that might be investing in challenging locations and and uh, help them to try to put together a strategy to make sure that that investment uh, can be successful. So, I mean, primarily uh, in, it involves uh, focusing and understanding about people, uh, relationships, connections, and, uh, and those three great uh, motivators of, of humans that Sicily's determined thousands of years ago that is a fear, interest and honour. So with uh, the position you're, you've taken now that you've been prepared to adopt that's supportive of our community, 
Jason, uh, when when you see so many others in uh, academia and in in, in similar uh, work situations to you who have sided with the pro-Palestinian cause, uh, do you want to elaborate on why uh, you you feel that you're prepared to come out and speak like this? I mean, if if you potentially uh, endanger. Uh, the, the, your organisation in a sense don't you because there's a lot of people who will tackle people like you and, 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 and kind of say well they'll, they'll boycott you or, or, or do something else that's uh, not going to benefit uh, your business necessarily Look I, I think that's a very good question uh, I, I think that well first first when you say uh, you know coming out in support of like I'm not doing anything more uh, or less than I've done all my life. Uh, all my life has been about standing up for and and defending and advocating for people who share the same values, the same culture, uh, the same Judeo-Christian uh, framework from which we've built our great societies. Uh, I've always stood by and stood up for and seemed to be either a quiet voice or a, or a loud voice. Uh, I simply don't care about any... A reaction or where it might offend people or it may uh, tread on sensitivities uh, and so it should uh, and if it gets people to think uh, a bit more clearly and hopefully a bit more critically about what's going on in their own position then that's what I care about and also I think that during this time uh, now more than ever we absolutely need to make sure that our network uh, what I might describe in my own work is our, our community web of protection across those who share the same values, the same uh, principles, uh, stick together. It, it, because if we don't, it can become a very lonely place. And you, as you rightly are kind of inferring, you can become very isolated. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, we need to all stick together in, in defending uh, uh, what we hold dear. Uh, and what's important, not just for us, uh, but our futures. It's a great position to take. You've been directly involved in supporting forces fighting against Islamic extremists, uh, and I want to refer to uh, something that's on your website where uh, one of the research and application areas that you include is the impact of terrorism, kidnapping, and insurgency on foreign investment and international business. Uh, which yes. clearly uh, relates to uh, what we're talking about as far as Israel Gaza is concerned. Do you want to tell us about some of your efforts in this area? Well, sure. I, I, if you are going to embark on, on uh, working in areas that are that are contested and often by uh, Islamist uh, insurgent uh, groups, then you have to prepare yourself uh, both physically and mentally or what you might be faced with, but also that helps to understand the mindset of those you are going to be dealing with, both those who may be your opponents, those who may be your friends, those who may be uh, neutral. And even if they are your uh, opponents fundamentally, it, you still can find some ground in which to come to an understanding uh, and enable you know, projects, people uh, to be able to succeed in these environments. Uh, so that's the kind of work that that I've been doing, uh, and I think that sometimes one of the mistakes that we've made, certainly from a Western leadership perspective, is lacking the uh, empathy for 
those who we're up against. And I think that, unfortunately, uh, many of us have been criticised for empathising with their opponents. That's uh, seen to be interpreted as sympathising with them. No, I don't sympathise with any of them. But if I empathise with the people who we're up against, then I can better understand their psychology. I can better understand uh, what's driving them because there's, you know, the former uh, great colonel uh, John Boyd said, you know, conflict is, is a, a moral, mental and physical continuum. Uh, that is primarily, it's moral and mental. And that's why we have to uh, be able to empathise with those who are challenging uh, our position or those of who we care about. So you read an article in the Australian, which is how I uh, uh, really came across you in the first place, and I'm, uh, uh, the title of the article was Islamist Terrorists Have Won the War for Hearts and Minds, and you wrote there that I quote now, we have large pools of disgruntled, impressionable, narcissistic communities nurtured on identity politics, envy and hate, a generation reared on fear except the fear of losing the soul of the West. Now, this is being legitimised by leading global organisations such as the UN. Now, why has this been allowed to happen, Jason, and who is to blame? David, I think you have to ask the people who have been leading us as to why this has been allowed to happen. I, I, I'm, and I don't imagine that you may be, and many of the listeners, are, we're not in any ability to, to create... Uh, power and security for our nations. Uh, maybe we take that for our own households and those next door to us and those within our communities, but we're not in the position to take that for our own countries. You know, if you took it from a realistic, uh, a realism perspective, you know. So you have to ask the people who are leading our, leading our nations, leading our multinational organisations, what, why they think that taking going down this path has in any way been good for us uh, and as we are seeing by what the reaction almost that like this grotesque post football type match celebration uh, that has occurred and continues to occur on our, on our streets uh, it's really hard to comprehend uh, I, I'm sorry I, I don't have an academic or uh, intellectual answer for you but I've got a fantastic uh, quote I think that you, you and your listeners will will understand, you know, from Churchill when he faced uh, uh, trying to explain a, a similar time, and that is, you know, we have a, a political and corporate class largely refused to face unpleasant facts, prefers smooth-sounding platitudes, and though they're not devoid of guile, uh, they're not, they're not, certainly not devoid of guilt, uh, and not free from wickedness or evil, they continue to play a definite part in unleashing upon us what we're witnessing. Uh, and even though they may in their hearts believe they're doing the right thing, uh, unfortunately uh, it is leading us down this path where we now see you know, school children and their parents and teachers out on the streets celebrating uh, the atrocities that we saw. And that's why I described it in that way. Yes, I... Uh I recommend your article indeed for people to read if they can get through the paywall on the Australian. I'm very happy to send the, the PDF, no problem. That's great. Now, I mentioned uh, the UN amongst the organisations that uh, uh, you would be condemning, and I need to bring up the fact that the uh, now 
with the United Nations General Assembly having just voted for a resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza and Australia having reversed its vote for this uh, type of motion in uh, the United Nations General Assembly. What do you make of that? You know, David, one thing that I'd like to understand uh, is how is it that a a sovereign nation like Israel that has been under relentless attack either directly or indirectly finds itself in the position where other nations and other multilateral institutions are dictating and determining whether it has a right to defend itself. I mean, I, I'm, I just don't understand that concept, uh, that way of thinking. I can't imagine that we would accept that for Australia, that, you know, for example, Congress in the United States voted that we have a right to defend ourselves. It just seems preposterous, and I'm sorry to sound naive, but it, it, to me, I just don't understand it, that Israel seems to be the only countries in, in the world that uh, other countries, other nations and multilateral organisations have to vote, decide, and state that it has a right to defend itself, and not just from, you know, small, uh, quiet, uh, you know, economic and, and other forms of, of, of uh, attacks, but the absolute barbarity that we saw on uh, uh, 7th of October. I don't understand that. So I'm sorry, I can't answer that question either, but I guess in the answer that I'm giving, I'm trying to reflect some of the questions that I have, and I think that many of us should be asking about the organisations that, that represent us and the people who represent us. Yeah, I mean, I could posit a lot of uh, uh, explanations for uh, what, what has happened. I mean, we, we can be very uh, cynical, and uh, we know that Australia's uh, got a large uh, Muslim population now, a burgeoning Muslim population. It's got a lot, a lot of left-wing... Uh, uh, people within its own party that have been pressuring the leadership of the Labor Party to uh, to call for a, a ceasefire, and the people in the streets uh, seem to have been swayed by um, pictures coming through the media. Uh, polls taken of uh, just people in the streets seem to suggest that they are calling for a ceasefire without having any understanding of what that really uh, signifies. Look, look, David, I'm sorry to cut you off, but there's nothing left or right-wing about raping and beheading. Mm. There's just not. Mm. And and for some of the most important influential uh, people in our country, uh, women included, not to be able to, to make that distinction or to provide some kind of uh, explanation for it, I, I find abhorrent. I have trouble explaining it to my own daughters and my own wife. Uh, I it, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I think it's a sad state that some people have got themselves into to be able to rationalise that in their own minds that such such acts are, are, are explainable in certain circumstances but not others. Yes, I think from what I was saying, I think the media bears a lot of uh, responsibility because of the way that it's uh, portraying uh, what's going on in, uh, in Gaza at the moment. But moving on to another question with that I want to get in the time we have available uh, from our point of view of our community we're experiencing an almost total animus toward Israel and by default the Jewish community from Muslims in Australia and I uh, can refer you to a public statement of support in solidarity with all with in solidarity with all advocates for Palestine for an alliance of Australian Muslims uh, I see this as driving a wedge into our society 
threatening social cohesion very seriously. From your standpoint, what is your prognosis? Do you agree that we're uh, putting ourselves in a very bad place? I, I think we are in a bad place. I think the reaction after 7th of October does reflect that. That's why I, I, I wrote uh, that opinion piece because that's the way that I critically thought about what I was observing uh, and it's unfortunate that this is the position we find ourselves in. We, we kind of thought we'd dealt with Islamist terrorist insurgency uh, after the fall of ISIS but it turns out that we haven't. It actually is this uh, evolutionary uh, insurgency that is slowly creeping across our, our Judeo-Christian uh, nations, uh, and it's also wrapped itself around a whole lot of other movements and groups that have found sympathy and in like-minded uh, individuals and, and institutions to, to support it. And I think so. What what actually for me is far more uh, troublesome than just the physical violence. I mean, we, we that's obviously uh, uh, abhorrent and, and uh, disgraceful, but what concerns me more is the, is the is the non-violent threat that we face where you know language the education system uh the, the kind of themes that become acceptable that slowly chip away at, at you know how we started the conversation david the very things that underpin the greatness of uh western culture and western civilization uh, and that's what worries me that we slowly lose our, our grip on that and then those who seek to defend it become uh, isolated and, as you said, uh, fearful of speaking out because they may lose their job or they may become socially isolated from their friends. Mm. I think that's what worries me uh, more. We can kind of deal, you know, we, while uh, uh, very uh, you know, challenging for us emotionally, we, we can deal with physical things, but the, the, the moral and mental, uh, I guess, degradation of those things that we hold dear, those intangible things in our society, those things that have kept, you know, means mean so much to people from Israel, uh, that that's what worries me. But I think that what also gives me great hope is that we have people like yourself and a whole lot of other people in our community uh, where protection that we can construct and strengthen uh, to be able to defend what we hold uh, dear to us all. Because in the end, David, uh, you know, come back to my maybe it's rather stark point, but there's nothing left or right wing about raping and beheading people. There's yes. simply not. And anybody who looks to provide an excuse for that, they should be ashamed of themselves. Yes. In, this, in the vein of what I just asked you, uh, Islamism can maybe be an extreme form of Islam, but there is not necessarily a discontinuity between those we might refer to as good Muslims and bad Muslims. For our Jewish community, we have witnessed a total lack of public expressions of support for Israel, uh, even from Muslims with whom some of our community leaders were closely associated, and this has led to many community leaders, rabbis involved in interfaith activities, withdrawing and evidence of serious divisions in our social cohesion and big cracks appearing in our idealised model of multiculturalism. So how do we get out of this mess that we now find ourselves in? Have you got any suggestions, Jason? Well, I think that the, the, if, if you think about uh, uh, an old-fashioned counterinsurgency model, the way that, w- the way that an insurgency group takes a village at first 
co-ops or removes the key nodes of leadership in a, in a village, the, the religious leadership, uh, the political leadership and the security leadership. Uh, it starts to, you know, they look to remove those and replace them uh, with their own. And I think that for us to be able to protect ourselves and, and our future, then we need to make sure that we also protect those who are the leaders in those positions throughout our community and society. Uh, so, you know, th- those people within the Muslim community who do feel quite strongly have a different different view, you know, they also need to be supported. Uh, and because it's tough for them as well uh, it, it, to be able to speak out and voice their view on what they might think that could go against the, what is becoming a mainstream view. But, you know, the other thing we've got to ask ourselves is it uh, is it really uh, what everybody's thinking, or is it just this uh, at the moment a, a loud, uh, vociferous uh, group of people who cornered uh, the narrative, cornered the debate and the discussion uh, to to try to create no space, limit the space for those leaders to be able to speak out? Uh, I think something something in there is we were to find the way to be able to support them, and then uh, we flip that counterinsurgency model so we protect we protect uh, those nodes of leadership across our communities whether they be Jewish, whether they be Muslim whether they be atheist doesn't really matter where they're from if they're out there supporting, providing a voice critically thinking through the, these issues and providing uh, uh, that foundation across our system then I think that we'll be in a better place We certainly appreciate uh, your sentiments Jason, and uh, your support. I thank you very much for speaking with me today on my program, News Row Connection. That's the least I can do, David. All the best. Thank you indeed. So I've just been speaking with uh, Dr. Jason Thomas, the head of the organisation Frontier Assessments, who has been discussing the widespread Islamist threat that the West is facing today, amongst other things. Israel called up 360,000 reservists in the wake of the vicious assault on October the 7th by hundreds of Hamas gunmen who overran towns, kibbutzim and army bases near the Gaza enclave, killing around 1,200 civilians and soldiers and wounding over 2,700. One of those who had responded to the call to serve his country was Naftali Gordon. Arnold Roth, whose daughter died in the Sabaro Pizzeria bombing over 20 years ago, has now sadly lost his son-in-law, Naftali Gordon, who was killed on the battlefield in Gaza late last week. Last weekend I spoke with Arnold just hours before Naftali Gordon's funeral. I really appreciate in the terrible condition that you find yourself in that you're willing to talk to me very early in the morning just before the funeral of uh, your son-in-law. Having been through this before, I know that there's almost nothing you can do as a parent except try to try to share your experience with other people. Do you mind explaining or telling us what happened to uh, your son-in-law, Naftali Gordon, why you unfortunately have to be attending his funeral today? What, what transpired, as far as you're aware? It's a chain of events. The first of them occurred on the 7th of October when uh, we woke up to air raid warnings, uh, incoming rocket warnings. Uh, that was the Shabbat and uh, Simchat Torah. By the time I got back from 
the prayer services, which in my case are out of doors. I've been praying as part of a really, really wonderful, very enriching outdoor minion, which meets every week uh, and during the week since the outbreak of Corona. I missed Naftali, but he, he and his wife and their two little girls had come by in order to tell us that Naftali was going to answer the call to the reserves and he was on his way, even though it was Shabbat, he was he was driving to uh, where his reserves unit was and he stayed there. He only had a couple of days, one day furloughs and then a three day furlough about two weeks ago and he was due home this Shabbat yesterday or Friday. In the course of his service as a, as a Miluimnik, a reservist, he was uh, first working on he hasn't been in Miluim for four years. Of course, finished his military service, compulsory military service years before that. He was assigned to a tank team that was working on repairing tanks that were coming back from Gaza. He wasn't in Gaza. And then suddenly he was in Gaza and a member of a team. And uh, for the past two weeks, he's been involved in combat. We heard from him very little. On Thursday, uh, Pessy. Uh, my daughter called me early in the morning and said she's got a food package that she's arranged for a a relay of of uh, couriers, of volunteer couriers, to take the food package down to the entrance to Gaza, and from there it'll be delivered to his unit. And she very much wanted my help because she had to head off to work after dropping children off at uh, at their kindergartens. So at nine o'clock in the morning, I was out in the street handing a basket to a fellow I've never met whose name I didn't know, who I, well, I really knew about him was that he was one of many people, thousands, who are uh, giving up their time now to do simple acts like that, not shoot the enemy, not make a speech in the United Nations, but to carry some snacks out to a young man who's out there in the field, probably engaged in combat. That was going to take some hours, and that was 9 o'clock. Later that day, 6.30 in the evening, we got the awful news from the army, and uh, we discovered then that he was already dead at nine o'clock. He'd been killed at the end of a four-hour intense battle inside his tank. He, he he was killed inside his tank along with one of the other four, one of the other three. There's four men in the tank. Three, the other three men, who happens to have the surname Roth, uh, two other men were not killed, but uh, as I understand it, are pretty badly injured. All of this we only got to know long after the event had actually happened and, uh, and not much detail at all. The war, um, the information about the war is pretty care carefully uh, controlled, uh, perhaps monitored by the army to avoid families getting the wrong messages about their loved ones. And uh, so we were without news and, and, the, and Israeli society in general was without news about this particular incident until a few minutes before the onset of uh, Shabbat on Friday, this past Friday, when the announcement was made, although we, of course, already knew it, but the announcement was made that uh, of the deaths that I've just uh, mentioned. And uh, only a few hours ago, which means late on Saturday night, we were notified that there'll be a funeral today at 2 o'clock in the afternoon at the Har Herzl Military Cemetery. What we have ahead of us is a nightmare. I mean, we're in a nightmare, and... Uh, the next steps in that nightmare involve making arrangements for vulnerable little girls under the age of three. Pessy and uh, Naftali had two little toddlers. Uh, you were at the wedding, David, so you will remember that they were married a little over four years ago. So they have a three-year-old and they have a one-and-a-half-year-old. 
they have to be taken care of. So starting at eight o'clock this morning, Israel time, I'll be down at Pessy's place, which is just a short walk from where we live. Four of our children live very close to where we live. I'll be taking care of them. And then around noon, we'll be leaving on a bus that will be serving our neighborhood and going straight to the, to the cemetery. And uh, we'll be doing the ritual things that involve putting a person into the earth uh, and then going and staying together for the next uh, for, the, for the remaining days of the Shiva, something that I'm not at all looking forward to. I don't have much recollection of how it was when we sat Shiva for, for Malki, Bessie's older sister, and uh, I'm not looking forward to this because I know that it involves a lot of uh, looking inside yourself as well as trying to look brave to, for other people. That's, that's what's waiting for us now. So in a sense, uh, with this uh, being so fresh, it is a bit easier to speak when once once the gravity of it all is, sinks in and seeps so deeply through you, it's, it becomes, I suppose, a little bit uh, harder to uh, to deal with things. Well, time is definitely a healer, but uh, in the context of losing a child, or in this case, a son-in-law who's the father of my two of my grandchildren uh, you know time has a certain slowness about it that uh, affects its uh, its impact on your life it's not a horror show i'm not trying to i i really want people to just be aware of uh, the of the impact here more than most people i pay a lot of attention to the social media and i see how israelis are depicted as being bloodthirsting uh, vengeful people who are only interested in carrying out acts of apartheid and genocide and, and the other nonsense. The reality is that a young man like Naftali, a physiotherapist, a gentle, fine soul, one of the loveliest people I've ever known, didn't hesitate, uh, Shabbat or not Shabbat, Simchat Torah or not Simchat Torah, to jump into his car and, and drive to the other side of the country and just know that his wife and children will be looked after by the rest of the family. And stayed there, stayed there for for two months, and uh, and now we're going to bury him as a, a reward for for his fineness and his and his dedication. I never heard a political word from Naftali in all the time that I knew him, and it wasn't at all about politics. What people outside of Israel don't, I think, fully appreciate in the way that you can only appreciate when you're in the midst of it, is how the world changed totally for us on the 7th of October. The world of the 6th of October is not the same as the world of the 8th of October. And a lot of the revelations, which are just being made even now, have underpinned the revelations of the, of the savagery and the atrocities and the, 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 the delight that these monsters from down there took in, in what they did to, to young Israelis has changed the mindset of Israeli society from wall to wall. This is not the same country where people uh, thought that the highest calling was to demand an end to a political process that they felt was wrong or a judicial process. Many of the people who were deeply involved in the protests over the last nine months against the Prime Minister, uh, of whom I'm no great fan, I don't mind saying it, but, but they've dropped their protests. They, they, they came to an end on the 7th of October at about 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, haven't come back. And, and the reason is because if you create the conditions where every one of us feels like we're under attack, and we are, and our homes are under attack, our children are under attack, the more you look at the victims, the more you realize that these were, these people skewed leftwards and, and, and towards progressives and uh, 
and attitudes that uh, are often identified with some of our worst enemies in some cases. Those were the targets. Those were the prime targets of what that act of, of pillage and rape on the 7th of October meant. And uh, it's not in the smallest way vengeance when 400,000 Israelis answer the call to join the reserves. It's, uh, it's solidarity. It's a, a reminder to themselves and to the world that we're in this together. We recognize that we're in danger. Israel has bomb shelters that the people in Gaza don't have. It has weapons that the people in Gaza don't have, but it doesn't have a death wish like the people in Gaza. Too many of them do have been hammered into them by their leaders. We don't have a death wish at all. We want a better life. And Israeli society has done a fabulous job. I've seen it myself in the 30, more than 35 years that I've lived here, how in, intense and, and uh, determined Israelis are to have a better life. And they don't begrudge their neighbours. I should say we don't begrudge our neighbours a better life. On the contrary, we wish that they would embrace the possibilities in ways that they don't today. So it's nothing to do with vengeance and it's nothing to do with hatred and apartheid and genocide are useful words if you don't have any real argument to advance your own cause. So we have to put up with hearing this push back at us all the time uh, by the media as well as by the, uh, the, the monsters themselves and the people who sponsor the monsters. Uh, this is about protecting our families. And Naftali is, is about as good an example as any I can think of, of a gentle soul who didn't hesitate for a moment to walk away from his lovely wife and his lovely children and his lovely life and his lovely circle of friends and go and put himself in harm's way. And in the end, we're burying him for all of that. Yeah, the, the passing of uh, your son-in-law is very much, uh, or very, very close to um, another... Uh, uh, person uh, who was serving Israel, who who died, who's uh, well known, being the son of Gadi Eisenkot. There we have um, uh, together with uh, your son-in-law. We see somebody passing alongside or close close to the time that that you've lost your son-in-law. It just seems like. Uh, it's horrendous when we hear this this news. I, I can't personally, when I look at the lists of of the names of uh, Israeli young Israeli soldiers who have been serving, uh, I I find it unbearable just to go through the list and see the names and what that represents. I'm completely with you. Eisenkot's nephew was announced yesterday as uh, one of the fallen in Gaza. So there. Two, two, uh, four, two funerals in the Eisenkot family in, in, oh, in two or three days. Terrible. But if you look at the, if you look at the uh, at the daily tallies, which get very close attention in Israeli society, just as any other family would focus on its losses, you'll see every part of Israeli society represented there. Different parts of the socio demographic spectrum, uh, and men and women, religious and non-religious, every every possible kind of identifier you'll find in that group because it's a, it's a citizen army acting in a way that I've never seen. I mean, the very idea that for more than the number of people who were called up to reserves to Milouin answered the call says a great deal. People rushed from overseas in order to join their units. 400,000 people in a country as small as Israel has an enormous impact. We don't have waiters and shop assistants and research scientists and lawyers and, and physiotherapists 
they're all not at their jobs. They're, they're doing things in an awful, awful, awful neighborhood, trying to get at the war-making capacity of Hamas, which I know you know it, but I know too many people don't know it. The war-making capacity of Hamas is underground and deeply embedded inside schools and bedrooms and mosques and every other kind of facility, the hospitals that are normally uh, off limits. There's no other way to look at this. Israel it, it can either respect the sanctity of children's bedrooms, uh, even though it turns out that they have entry points into tunnels and mortar supplies and RPGs and AK machine guns and, and, and weaponry of every kind. Or we can say, that's enough. If we stop and if we don't remove all of this, then we're simply guaranteeing for ourselves the same next summer and again and again. Uh, you know, even in the half a lifetime that I've been here, because I've spent half my life living in Israel, we've been at war with these these monsters, the Islamist regime that has its foot on the neck of Gazans, many of whom have, have swallowed the Kool-Aid. They, they believe in the same Islamist doctrine. In, in all those years, we've had war after war with these people. And even in the immediate aftermath of the events of the 7th of October, which were acclaimed as a, as a triumph, not only by the monsters in Gaza, but by the people who identify with them, we've had named prominent leaders of Hamas taking the trouble to tell Israelis and the world, we're going to do this again. This was a tremendous restoration of our pride. This was a statement in the name of our values, and we're going to do it again. Uh, anybody who pauses to think about the impact of those last two sentences or three sentences of mine will understand why in every society a certain point is reached where people say, that's it. If for them the highest military goal is an outdoor rave, a party with thousands of young kids dancing away the night, many of them activists in efforts to reach out to Palestinian Arabs and Gazan Arabs and every other kind of con configuration, uh, treat them as the target, rape them deliberately, uh, murder them in cold blood, shoot them down as their... Uh, the details you know, everybody knows them. If that's the highest expression of what they want in life and they're willing to die for it and they're willing to sacrifice everything for it, then this isn't a war. This is a crusade by religious zealots, and even if you don't see them as religious, zealots in the, in the thrall of a value system that is so monstrous. Monstrous is the only word that can describe it. They look like human beings, but they act like monsters. Uh, you need to look at your own children, your own grandchildren, your own sons-in-law, your own neighbours and people on your street, and you need to say, and this is what Israelis have said, from wall to wall in these two months, Adkan, no more. We can't do this anymore. We have to push back. We have to do everything that it takes at whatever the price to remove their war-making capacity. And that is not a position that has won a lot of um, favor in the eyes of the, of the world. And more and more you hear Israelis, ordinary Israelis, even ordinary Israelis who write columns in Haaretz, the uh, well-known voice for progressive views in this country, are saying just what I'm saying. It doesn't mean they've changed their politics. It means that reality has punched them in the face and then punched them again. 
and told them that unless our side stops this, the other side won't stop. It has narrowed the gap uh, between Jews who one might say inhabit the, the left and right of, of politics. Can I ask you, Arnold, have you got any other members of your family who are currently serving uh, in the Israeli army that are in some potential danger? You don't have to be in the army to be in potential danger, as we learned with the incoming <laughs> rockets. But, true, uh, true. One, of my, one of my other children was in Milawim until uh, about 10 days ago uh, and uh, and uh, asked for leave. Uh, he's uh, He runs a professional practice, which is in danger of uh, being severely damaged, so he's been given a couple of weeks off. He may or may not decide to go back in. I don't know. I don't know whether the... <laughs> Death of, uh, of of Naftali is affecting his thinking, but uh, my my children are beyond the age of army and of uh, normal reserves, and my grandchildren are not yet at that age. You know, what people don't realise is that those who are who are largely serving at the front uh, are experienced uh, uh, who have served uh, done their uh, their IDF duty, which is their compulsory duty but they've been called back to serve again because they're the ones that have got the experience having done a full uh, uh, stint of, of duty in Israel. Uh, and, of course, Israel can't put uh, uh, people who are essentially inexperienced uh, just going through IDF training into imminent danger. So uh, people who have uh, already served the IDF are finding themselves having to serve yet again. They make up the bulk of Israel's uh, deterrent capacity, military capability. Uh, one of the manifestations of that you can see in the in the beautiful synagogue that I attend, I mentioned before. It's out of doors, rain, hail, shine, and it's mostly people a generation younger than me. And so uh, yesterday was not a good example, but uh, the last couple of weeks we have seen a, a considerable number of the young fathers uh, and in and a couple of cases young mothers and girls uh, who have had furloughs from the army and one of the hard and fast rules here is that once you leave the army and go home on reserves as a reservist uh, you go home with a furlough of a day or two days you've got to keep the weapon that you're assigned under conditions of locked away that nobody can possibly meet so the alternative to that is it's got to be on your shoulder when you're asleep when you're at shul in synagogue when you go shopping whatever you do you can so so what we had uh, over the last few weeks was at any time roughly 10 of the young men uh, and young women in our minion uh, who are in the middle of their prayers in most cases holding a child it's it's mostly a minion of, of people who have children under the age of bar mitzvah with a gun machine gun advanced uh, weaponry uh, if they're male with a talit over their shoulders and uh, trying to make this normal of course it is normal at a certain point if everybody is doing it but it never feels normal uh, on the other hand you don't have the sense that you do when you watch news from the united states of yet another shooting attack on on innocence you don't feel a in danger and you don't feel that the people holding this weaponry which is about as powerful as a, a ordinary uh, handheld weapons can ever get usually long rifles often automatic you don't feel that the people around them are in danger 
because one of the key lessons that's, that's internalized by people who do their military service is respect your weapon, never use it in, uh, in, in the heat of the moment and treat it with uh, enormous deference. You feel this everywhere. This isn't like peacetime. I don't know what it would be. The, the Perhaps 10 or 15, 20% of the workforce is away fighting right now. And, and you run into this uh, everywhere. A lot of restaurants are closed. A lot of appointments, medical appointments are the ones you run into the most, have simply been deferred now until until better times because the people involved, from, from nurses to professors of medicine, are not at their posts. They're, they're out there defending the country from the monsters. One area, I suppose, which perturbs you, especially because of what you've been doing ever since uh, Malky, your daughter, was killed in a terrorist attack uh, over 20 years ago, is the issue of the, the hostages. We can, you've spoken about Israel being very, very united, but there is um, a bit of a, a, a fracture in that unity because of the hostages and missing families forum who clearly are uh, very, very concerned about members of their, their families who are in the clutches of Hamas and want to see Israel doing everything within within its power to free those hostages, but Israel's got its hands tied behind its back and is unable to do their wishes as they might want. This is really a, a serious bind on uh, on Israel at the moment, and perhaps the only indication of where there is uh, some of uh, some division in in, in Israel. Uh, there are other divisions as well, and uh, I'm not trying to make Israel seem like uh, you know Alice's Wonderland, but the issue of what to do in light of the massive hostage taking uh, is is contentious, and uh, most politicians who who engage in this uh, walk a very thin line between saying both statements are true. Uh, we have to do everything we can uh, within reason to to bring the hostages out of the hands of the monsters and back to freedom on one hand, and on the other hand, prosecute this war so that we can ensure there aren't more wars like this and more 7th of Octobers. That, that translates into very, very, very tough decisions. I have to say that, uh, well, you may not know, you may not, you know, there was a major attempt to free some hostages a couple of days ago, yes. and it didn't go well. And uh, you have to remember what, what, the motivations of the monsters who are holding the hostages are. It's not uh, out of respect for their, the sanctity of their lives that they are keeping them alive. It's it's the same sort of thing that we do when we take a piece of chicken and put it in the freezer so that it remains viable for when we need it. That's pretty much the attitude that the hostage takers have. They're, they've almost certainly killed some of the hostages that we don't know about yet almost certainly. They have no interest in providing for them. The tragedy is, is, is uh, simply a, a sharper, the tragedy of the hostages is simply a sharper manifestation of what it means to be at war, not with someone who wants your territory or your pizza stores, but someone who wants you and everyone around you dead, uh, dead as spectacularly as possible, because that's what their value system demands. They want to humiliate and destroy and pillage and rape and kill, working out some sort of an understanding with them so that you, precious lives are saved is a really, really difficult challenge. I just wanted to draw the, the distinction, however, between this situation and the Gilad Shalit uh, deal, which was uh, the circumstance in which Malki's murderer 
was freed. In that situation, Israel gave 1,027 uh, terrorists, every one of them convicted, and more than half of them murderers, to Hamas in order to get Gilad Shalit back. And as you might recall, Fremont and I were totally opposed to the to the deal without ever saying, don't do this deal. What we did say is, this deal is a catastrophe, and we're going to cry about it for, for years. Chialadorot in the traditional Hebrew expression. It's not, it's not modern Hebrew. It's, it's what, what you find in traditional texts. Chialadorot. We will regret this for generations to come. And here we are, uh, 22 years uh, after Sabaro and uh, uh, 12 years after the doing of the uh, Shalit deal, and the entire leadership of the Hamas is made up of people who walked free that day. Pia Sinwar was photographed leaving prison at about the same time as Ahlam Tamimi, the Jordanian wretch who masterminded the Sabaro massacre. But these are, in a, I mean, I hesitate to say chickens coming home to roost, but they are a manifestation of the price we paid for falling victim to a, a classic miscalculation. It was never true, as our political leadership at the time said, at the time of the Shalit deal, we had the same Prime Minister then as now, it was never true that we will do everything, 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 because everything has to be done in order to bring back the hostages. No, that was never true. No one ever believed it, except the public. Uh, what is true is you have to do everything, 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 provided that you're not causing other people unnecessarily to be injured or worse. And uh, we're, we're seeing... Uh, a, a, a much more complicated situation given the numbers and given the political will of those who who have their loved ones being held by the monsters uh, to to demand as in every public way that the government put everything else aside and pursue the release of the hostages and any parent any loved one any member of the family of the hostages would do exactly the same but that doesn't mean that the political leadership can afford to do exactly the same because doing deals like that has consequences and those consequences have to be understood as well. Now, despite all this happening in Israel, you always keep one eye on uh, on your home country of Australia and at times you've reacted to things you've seen through social media, on news sources, news outlets here. That, that really perturb you. One particular incident uh, I would like to mention because I want this to be aired is that a comedian who's very well reputed in Australia, a Muslim, Nazim Hussein, when he saw uh, he, these pictures of uh, the Hamas men who have been captured and stripped uh, to their underwear, he made a remark that uh, these men are being uh, prepared for execution which is absolutely a lie, a blood libel of, of the worst order. That uh, remark of his, I believe, um, has disappeared from Instagram, but I think we all need uh, to be aware of what people do when they react like this, and then they cover for themselves. We've seen uh, a member of the, the Greens here who uh, took a picture away uh, from her Facebook page uh, because it showed a young student with a poster throwing a mug and dove it in, into the garbage tin. And these these people just remove these things, but they need to be indicted for these the terrible things they do and, and the, the anti-Semitism that they're giving rise to. I don't think there's any doubt that we're seeing an upswell in monumental terms of hatred of Jews that's going on now and pretty much everywhere. 
kind of nonsense. I, I'm not aware of either of the cases that you've just mentioned, David, but uh, I'm certainly aware of identical claims being made by people who probably do not know better. It would be easier to say they know better, but they're telling bad stories because they're ideologically motivated. I think that many of the people who are publicly heard as commentators are idiots. And idiots, not only in terms of the way their logic works, but also idiots in terms of how willing that they are to speak out uh, without doing any kind of reality check. The, the photographs of uh, men stripped of their underwear, of whom there are now many hundreds and maybe thousands, is a reflection of how many of the Hamas fighters have surrendered once it was clear to them that they really don't stand a chance. It's either surrender or die. And uh, despite what their ideological uh, masters trumpet, they'd rather live than die. But uh, stripping them to their underwear is a way of ensuring that they're not carrying weaponry. And anybody who doesn't acknowledge that in coming up with their absurd blood libel, as you've just correctly characterized it, uh, is doing uh, war propaganda. Uh, if Israel were called upon to allow people who surrender to remain attached to their weapons or dressed up in fur coats, there's only one consequence, and it won't be a consequence that the comedian uh, will face. It'll be a consequence that the rest of us and, and those of us who have children and grandchildren in the war will face. There's no reason to be that kind of idiot. We should be uh, finishing up. You've got a horrendous day ahead of you. I think in about uh, eight hours, you've got the funeral of Naftali Gordon to attend to, and then you'll be sitting shiver, like you've said, a terrible situation, and I find it particularly uh, heart heart wrenching. Knowing that the last time I was in Israel, that I did attend the wedding of of Naftali Gordon and your daughter Pessy, and as I look on my WhatsApp feed, I can see that I go back to uh, to a link that you sent me to the video of that wedding. So it really is terribly hard to to bear the thought that uh, we. We see such joy has uh, now been overrun by uh, such anguish and pain. It's, it's a horrible situation that you're in, and I give you every sympathy that I can, Arnold. Thank you, David, and I appreciate the opportunity to sound off, and uh, I hope everyone uh, listening will uh, stay tuned in to the efforts Israel makes to win, not to make peace, to win. There will be no peace until the enemy's capacity to make war is destroyed, and that's what we should all be praying for. You've been listening to Arnold Roth, an ex-Australian who made Aliyah to Israel in 1988 and has suffered the loss of his son-in-law, Naftali Gordon, in Gaza. I would like to wish Hug Hanukkah Sameach to all my listeners. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection. <laughs>